0: Jonathan Edwards uh, is known as one of the most influential theologians the world has ever known. Many refer to him as a genius, um, a man who had a voracious appetite for learning, um, a man with an astute and very logical mind. So today we're going to learn a little of his life um, and his experiences. Um, And to do that, we're going to head back to the 18th century. Um, and the new colonies of America. In the early 1700s, America was certainly not United States. They were made up of separate colonies, some British, some owned by the French, some owned by Spanish. And there were many wild areas yet to be explored by the Europeans. The British had settled on the coast in 13 small colonies and most of these people who settled there were Puritans. They were migrants from England. People who were not happy with the way of the Church of England. In England they were known as dissenters. They refused to join the Church of England and they were persecuted. They were seen as a minority. Uh, They were ridiculed and uh, they were not free to worship. Um, They weren't even free to preach. So When the opportunity arose, many of these people fled to uh, the new world to set up life and start life afresh there. Now, the area that we're concerned with today is New England, um, and that's uh, where Jonathan Edwards lived. And this particular area includes Massachusetts and Connecticut and those areas there. And as the name suggests, New England was very much tied to England, And the people there saw themselves as British. They didn't yet have an American identity. Right next to New England, we have New France. And of course, in this early time, there was a lot of conflict between the different colonialist, uh, I guess, colonies and so on. And of course, the Native American Indians as well uh, often uh, invaded towns and things like that. The American Indians often allied themselves with the French, And this caused a lot of friction, wars erupted here and there, sometimes uh, there'd be an invasion and a whole town would be burnt up in a night and things like that. So when I talk about America and mention the various towns that may be familiar to you, you cannot at all think of uh, what we would perhaps think of today, a thriving, peaceful country and so on. We need to imagine military camps, we need to imagine stockades, small farm holdings, and of course, beyond these towns, vast, untamed wilderness. Now, we must also remember that being the 1700s, this was a very dangerous time. Um, travel was very difficult. Death was everywhere. And uh, We only need to have a look at the alphabet book that children used to read back in those days. Now... In this particular alphabet uh, book, where all the different letters uh, are sort of pictured and little rhymes to help children learn the alphabet letters, we can see that the letter T has time cuts down all, both great and small, with a lovely picture of the Grim Reaper. And then for the letter Y, we have "Youth uh, youth forward slips, death soonest nips. And again, a nice picture of the Grim Reaper holding a spear at a child's head. Death was everywhere, children, many children didn't live to the age of five, childbirth took many mothers and I think every family uh, knew the experience of losing a loved one. So it was into this very turbulent world that Jonathan Edwards was born. He was born in 1703 and he was from a very respectable family. Uh, His grandfather on his mother's side uh, was the revered Solomon Stoddard a very well-known person in that area. He was a pastor of a church in Northampton. Now, his father, too, was a very devout man, Timothy Edwards, and he was a pastor of a church in East Windsor. Jonathan was the fifth of 11 children and the only boy. His father often joked about having 60 feet of daughters. Actually, this was quite literal, because all the 10 daughters were six foot tall. Including Jonathan, he he too was very, very tall. Growing up as the only boy in a very patriarchal society meant of course that he was doted on, but actually also he had a lot of responsibility. Uh, His father was very keen that he have an excellent education, and there would, but he also, he he also wanted uh, his son to have a very much refined character. He didn't want any sign of willfulness, no laziness, and he had very high expectations from his son. Now Timothy Edwards had a very clear, very strong view of salvation and what it means to be converted. Now back in these times, the church buildings were mere meeting houses. They looked very ordinary. There was nothing to separate them from the other houses or buildings in the town. And the reason for that was because the Puritans believed that the church was the people. The Holy Spirit dwelt within the people nothing to do with the building. And this was definitely a reaction to the great cathedrals of Europe. Now Timothy Edwards certainly believes this, um, and he uh, and his family were Calvinists. To put this very simply, they believed in God's free gift of salvation, and the idea that it was God who chose those who would respond to him. So Timothy wanted his congregation to be very clear on where they stood before God and he wanted them to have a very clear conversion experience. He thought about this really carefully and he didn't mean for people to have a very dramatic experience like uh, Paul on Damascus on the road to Damascus but he didn't even he didn't even think that people needed to have a single moment where they could say at that point in time I was converted. But he thought that everybody should have an experience that kind of covered these three key steps. First, he said that people should have a conviction of where they stand before God. They should see their unworthiness, a sense of their sin. And then they would receive God's grace and the Holy Spirit. And finally, he said there should be a lasting experience of change in both your thinking and behaviour. So he wanted people to really make a public confession of, of these three things. And the reason he did this was because he didn't want people to be deceived. He didn't want people to think they were saved when they were not. And he also wanted people to be genuinely transformed and true disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, Jonathan, growing up in this household, was very much influenced by his father and uh, this view of salvation, and he wanted to live a pious life. When he was nine years old, he um, went into the woods and he built a hideout, nothing unusual there, but he used his hideout for regular prayer, and he spent many times uh, in a day uh, in his little hideout praying, and he soon was encouraging other boys to come and join him to pray. Now this was a little bit of uh, self-generated piety and he, he certainly wanted to live up to his father, father's expectations. But his father didn't really see anything in this. And as time went on, Jonathan became more distracted by other things and he, he played with the other boys and soon that hideout became a sort of like a, a centre where they played you know uh, games of war and pretended to fight Indians and such like. But Jonathan really did struggle with this idea of salvation and partly it was because of his father's influence. But actually it also meant that he really valued salvation and he really wanted to know that he was truly born again. Now Jonathan had learnt very well under his father and his older sisters. I mean I don't think he got away with anything. He was competent in Latin and Greek. And so he was accepted at the very young age of 13 into Yale. Now, Yale was a very new university at this time. And although he was quite young, and he was probably younger than most of the applicants, it was your competence in Latin and Greek that got you in, not your age. Now, during these years at Yale, he was, it was very uh, vigorous in his study, he was very diligent, he had learnt good discipline from uh, his childhood. But he also struggled a lot with his faith. In the new library of Yale, he he had access to a whole lot of books and uh, modern thinkers such as Isaac Newton. Uh, His scientific discoveries were rocking the new world at the time. And there was also so many philosophers that uh, he he read up on as well. One of the key things that Jonathan Edwards struggled with at this point was the idea that a good God could damn people to hell and then choose others to go to heaven. And the idea that God was sovereign and, and, and that he had the right to choose, this really bothered him. He didn't like to accept it. In fact, he called it a horrible doctrine. But he did accept that without God, he would go to hell. And he reasoned that eternal destiny should eclipse all other worldly concerns. And so he really did want to find out how he would have assurance of salvation. At the age of 16, he contracted pleurisy, a lung disease. Of course, anything like that in those days was um, life-threatening. And he was very sick, and he didn't think he was going to make it. He promised God that he would change. And in the face of death, he really was desperate for salvation. He described this experience later as being shaken over the pit of hell. But he did recover. And once he got his health back, he fell back into his old habits almost straight away. And he reflected on this and he was almost shocked at himself that he could just go back to his old ways so quickly after, after vowing all these things and being so desperate to change. But this time, God wasn't going to let him go. One day, he read... A verse in First Timothy chapter 1. Now unto the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. He'd read these words before, many times, but on this day the Holy Spirit really spoke to him and gave him a glimpse of the eternal, all-wise, glorious God, the creator of the vast universe. And he wrote, There came into my soul a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I'd ever experienced. And his prayer was different. He had a new love of God and a new joy that he'd never experienced before. But even so, he was very cautious about this and he didn't want to put too much stock on this one experience. And he actually wasn't sure that this was a major turning point But in retrospect, we can see that it was. He saw the world differently after this point. He had new insight from scripture. And he saw the love and beauty of God in all of creation. From the wildflowers to the thunderstorms. To him, these were all types that pointed to God and ultimately to the love of Christ. And suddenly to Jonathan Edwards, the idea of God's sovereignty was no longer a horrible doctrine. It was a delightful conviction. Now he was continuing at Yale to do his Masters and uh, he was appointed as part of this to be a supply pastor to a small church in New York. It was 1722 and he was 18 years old. Here Jonathan was welcomed into a very small congregation which was almost like, became like family to him. But New York opened his eyes a little bit to the world it was a thriving cosmopolitan town at that time of 10,000 people, This was very different to his home in East Windsor and even uh, his college in New Haven. There were Dutch, British, uh, French refugees. There were African slaves there. And also, for the first time, he met people who were not Christian. You see, Jonathan Edwards had grown up in a very Puritan community. Everybody went to church. And for the first time, he met people who were Jewish Jews by religion, and and even people who said they had no religion. This was a very new experience for Edwards, and it really opened his eyes to um, the world. But also, this time was a really good time of growth for the young pastor. He was a man who had many options before him. If we can think, he, he was clearly gifted, and he could easily have taken the road of academia. He actually was quite interested in science, um, not too different from his contemporary, Benjamin Franklin. But then there was also the family tradition, uh, tradition to perhaps uh, be a pastor. But actually, instead of focusing on what he would do and uh, you know, the future that was before him, he actually, during this time, really strove to live a life that was holy before God. At this time he was often struggling with irritability, controlling his tongue and he recognised in himself pride. And there were so many times when he had many doubts about his own faith and he reflected or grieved over his spiritual growth or lack thereof. And we know all this because he kept a bit of a diary um, for these two years during this time in New York. And in this diary he made 70 resolutions on all sorts of topics, on his character, uh, on time management, on prayer. And he prefaced these resolutions with this. I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to him, to his will, and for Christ's sake. Now on time, he wrote, I resolve never to lose one moment of time but improve it in the most profitable way i possibly can and he really did live this out as we will see he had other resolutions that were similar to this he talked about wanting to reflect on the things that he was doing to see that if he would have any regrets were this the last hour of his life now we might look at these resolutions and think It was all about self-development. But this was not the case at all. For Jonathan Edwards, he wanted to put into submission all the natural self, the sinful passions. And the reason he wanted to do this was so that he would be pliable to whatever God had in store for him and that he would be able to, to hear what God wanted to speak to him and what God's will was for his life. Not all his resolutions were very wise, He made resolutions about eating and drinking as well. He uh, was very careful in what he ate, and the reason for that was because he felt that digestion would take away energy from his study and from uh, his reading and so on. And so he only ate enough just to survive. But of course, when people looked at him as he climbed to the pulpit, looking weak and emaciated and often very sick, people thought that this perhaps wasn't the wisest of resolutions. With his vigorous schedule and his meagre eating habits, most people thought he wouldn't live to 40. Around this time, Jonathan was a visitor at the Pierpont family home. This family lived very close to Yale, and they were family friends. His father knew uh, the Pierponts fairly well. He was 19 years old at this point, And he was much drawn to the younger daughter, Sarah. He was impressed by her maturity and her faith. But she was very young at this time. She was only 13 years old. When Jonathan returned to Yale and was finishing off his master's degree, um, when he he graduated, he he decided and, and he was appointed to be a tutor at Yale. So he was very close to the Pierpont home. He was 21 when he was appointed to be a tutor there. But this turned out to be a very tumultuous time for him. The rector of Yale, Timothy Cutler, had recently stepped down. And this left a gaping hole in the administration. And so, you know, they, they, they couldn't find anyone to replace him. And so it was the tutors and sometimes the local clergy who tried to help run the university and also tried to help with the discipline and the administration and things like that. But things weren't going well. And during Jonathan Edwards' time there as tutor, the students were very, very difficult. During that commencement season, the boys were so rowdy, they would run through the corridors and ring bells whenever they wanted. Uh, Glass was being smashed in the dormitories, and even guns were being fired just for a laugh. Jonathan wrote of this time as three years of spiritual low and misery. and We don't know exactly what made him sink so low in those days but we do have a few clues we know that he did really struggle to build rapport with these rowdy students these people didn't take their studies seriously to say the least but we also know that he probably was very distracted by his love for sarah he had very high standards for himself and he didn't want anything to distract him from his walk before god During this time, we have a couple of diary entries. December 29th, he just writes, dull and lifeless. January 9th, decayed. January 10th, recovering. In 1727, Jonathan Edwards married Sarah Pierpont. She was 17 years old at the time. He was 23. Just a year before, in 1726, He had started assisting his renowned grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, um, in a church in Northampton. Now, Solomon Stoddard was now quite elderly, and he was in need of the support. And also, he knew that he would need someone to replace him, and he was very happy for Jonathan Edwards, his grandson, to be that person. Now, this was excellent training for Jonathan Edwards, um, and he would soon take over that congregation in 1729. Now Northampton was a thriving town of about a thousand people and when Sarah and Jonathan were married they had about 10 acres of land and, and generally this was the case. You know the town would, um, uh, would support the pastor but often the pastor also had to farm land to support himself and his family. Now Jonathan and Sarah welcomed their first child in 1728 and 10 more children were to follow. Now, many children during those days, uh, sorry, many families during those days had about uh, eight or nine children on average, and very few would survive childhood. But all 11 of Jonathan and Sarah's children survived childhood and into adolescence, which was most unusual in those days. Now, it wasn't long before Jonathan realised that although every person in Northampton went to church and went to all the meetings and the services, that many of them were not truly saved at all. He wrote, They come to meeting from one Sabbath to another and hear God's word, but all that can be said to them won't awaken them, won't persuade them to take pains that they might be saved. Northampton was also changing. Land rules meant that the youth couldn't as readily move out of their family home So they were living with their parents a lot longer than previously. And the youth subculture was developing in Northampton and elsewhere as well. Uh, There'd been a lot less respect for pastors, and particularly as Solomon Stoddard was ageing, there was a lot less respect for him as well. And the youth started to develop their own habits. One particular one was called frolicking, this was where the youth gathered on a Sunday night after a long day of going from meeting to meeting and all the different church services and they met on that night to let loose. This was either outdoors, running through the streets or in the local taverns. And during this time, um, there was a rise in premarital pregnancies and a lot more sexual immorality. But then in 1734, one of the admired and very popular young men in the town, got very sick and he was dead in two days. And this was a really huge shock to the youth. Jonathan preached at the funeral and his text was from Psalm 90. They are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows in the evening it is cut down and withers. And he called the youth to really think, reflect on their lives. And he called them to turn to Christ, to trust him. And to think about the day when they will be lying in that coffin. What would be said about them? Well, the young people were very impacted by Jonathan's intensity. Not long after this, there was another death. Another young woman, this time, was uh, uh, taken very ill. But she was dramatically saved and even while sick, she was telling others of the love of Christ. And at her funeral, Jonathan preached of the joy of knowing that this woman was now with the Lord and, in a, and bound in a love that far outshone the loves of this world. Now both these incidents happening in such close succession and young people that were very influential in the town, this had a huge impact on the youth. They were con- confronted with two very contrasting deaths. In autumn of that same year, the youth really started to change. Soon they were gathering in homes for informal meetings on Sunday nights rather than frolicking and drinking in the taverns and such like. And actually, soon the adults were following the youth. And thus began a very unique time in history. This was a time called the Awakening, where the Holy Spirit was really at work and thousands well, ten thousands upon thousands of people were being saved. By December, you could really see that people were truly changed. There was a young woman who was quite famous in the town for her absolute rejection of God. She uh, had a very, um, I guess, she was known for her coarseness and she had loose morals and, and such like. And she came to Jonathan Edwards' home and, and wanted to talk to him about salvation. And she was dramatically changed and started to testify to her peers. And and the change in her life was so dramatic that many people saw her and they they too came to Christ from her testimony. And soon there were lines of people outside the Edwards home wanting spiritual advice and counselling from Jonathan Edwards. People of all ages and backgrounds were affected. Slaves, the rich, the poor, children. But it really did impact the youth the most. Now Jonathan was quite cautious about this and he knew that people could get caught up in emotional fervour and, and, and just be sort of carried along. And he knew that only God knew who was truly saved. But he also saw that the change at this time in people's lives was not just momentary, it had fruit. His, his estimate was about 300 people in the town had come to Christ during that time. So in a town of a thousand, this is a pretty big impact. Being a very scientific person, he wanted to write down an account of this. And so he wrote an article, a precise and objective account of the things that were happening there in Northampton. He entitled it, A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. He thought that this would perhaps perpetuate the impact if other people read about it. And he sent it to a leading clergyman by the name of Benjamin Coleman, who was in Boston, Boston was the largest town in New England at that time. And he hoped that in sharing this, that other people would be encouraged too. But then, in the following year, in June of 1735, a very shocking incident occurred. A leading citizen, and actually a relative of Jonathan Edwards, slit his throat to commit suicide. This man had previously been seeking counsel from edwards and was really in despair at his sinful state and in a fit of melancholy or what we would term as depression he slit his throat now of course edwards was really shocked at this and so was the town and then after this other people felt really condemned by sin and they too were also feeling very tempted to just kill themselves And there were some more people that did. And suddenly these terrible events seemed to completely snuff out the the fervour of the awakening. And Jonathan got his article that he'd written, The Faithful Narrative, and he opened it up and he added the postscript talking about what had been happening. But he also knew that if God was working, then Satan too would be active. And he also knew that these Revivals don't last forever. They're periods of intensity. And he knew that God would finish the work he started. And he actually started to pray for worldwide awakening, more than just his little congregation in Northampton. Now, Jonathan Edwards' account, with the additional postscript, was actually sent from Boston to another clergyman in England by the name of Isaac Watts. Now Watts wanted to read it and he really wanted to publish this. He actually wrote to Benjamin Coleman to ask Jonathan Edwards to write an even fuller account. Now Isaac Watts and Jonathan Edwards did end up having some correspondence. At this time Isaac Watts had written a book of hymns and Jonathan Edwards had this and he and, and Sarah Edwards as well, they were great lovers of music and they loved singing Isaac Watts' hymns. Um, Prior to that, they were chanting psalms. So this was a vast improvement. And the youth particularly really enjoyed Isaac Watts' hymns. It's marvellous to think that Jonathan Edwards and his little flock in Northampton were singing and lifting their voice to, to hymns that we know very well too. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And even joy to the world... These were Isaac Watts' hymns. Edwards had been praying for God's work through the world and little did he know that around that very time there was a man by the name of George Whitfield, who had recently been saved. And he had started to travel around England and was preaching outdoors to great crowds of people who wanted to hear him. Not only this, but there was another man by the name of John Wesley who had been struggling in his faith And he, too, had recently been converted, his heart being strangely warmed. Now, both Whitfield and Wesley read this account, the faithful narrative of the surprising work of God, and it did inspire them in their work, in their preaching. In fact, John Wesley edited a version of it. Copies were sent to Scotland and had impact there. Whitfield ended up coming to America in 1738, and he actually returned seven times during his lifetime. Benjamin Franklin famously heard Whitfield speak, and perhaps was more impressed with his voice than anything else. But this was a time when people really looked up to the clergy. They saw they had a sense of the authority in the church, and they went to the clergy for all their spiritual needs, for guidance. But Whitfield was very different, because when he spoke, he was talking directly to the people. He was calling them directly apart from the clergy, in a way. And he actually had a lot to say about the clergy, having met some of them and, and seeing that many themselves were, were in need of salvation. He called them out as blind leaders of the blind. This was certainly true in some cases, but not all. Now Edwards, at this period of time, had been much grieved by the lukewarmness of his little congregation in Northampton. After that revival in 1734, and things had changed somewhat. There'd been recent squabbles about, you know, the church building and building a new meeting house, and then, and then there were, you know, there was fuss about seating arrangements. But Edwards lived in faith that God would work, and he wrote to Whitfield and invited him to come to Northampton. Whitfield agreed and actually stayed in Jonathan Edwards' home. Now, the two men were quite the contrast. I mean, Edwards was a tall, thin, very serious man of 37, although he looked probably 137 due to his rigorous work and austere diet. Whitfield, on the other hand, was a bright 25 years old. He was robust, energetic, dramatic and very eloquent. But Whitfield was very impressed by the Edwards' home. And he wrote, actually, uh, when Jonathan Edwards was there and listened to Whitfield preach, Whitfield wrote in his journal, The good Mr Edwards wept through the whole time of the Sabbath sermon. And then later he added, I have not met the equal of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards in all New England. Edwards accompanied Whitfield as he rode along the Connecticut River towards East Windsor. And Jonathan saw firsthand the impact of the awakening. Uh, you know, when the news came that Whitfield was coming to a town, you know, people would drop their tools in the field and run. You could actually see the crowd, the clouds of dust, uh, heading towards the town as people jumped on horses or just ran on foot. But Edwards was worried that Whitfield's condemnation of the clergy at that time as blind leaders of the blind was perhaps not always wise. He felt that there were times when he should withhold judgment and show a little more caution. He was also concerned about the emotional fervor that was happening and being stirred up by Whitfield around the time. Now, of course, Jonathan understood that there would be emotion. Of course there would. As people faced their sin and as people heard of God's forgiveness and grace, there would be emotion, of course. But he was worried that the seed was in shallow ground in many cases. He spoke to his congregation afterwards of the parable of the sower and he urged them to have hearts of good soil so that the seed that had been planted wouldn't wither or be choked by distraction and trial. Now around this time, Jonathan, having perhaps learnt a little from Whitfield, decided that he should also travel a little bit further than his little congregation in Northampton. And so he would travel to other villages, and he was soon invited to preach in other places. On a particular Wednesday, he was uh, riding through a town called Enfield. And he was asked, at the very last minute, if he could preach. The preacher that was intended for that particular service had fallen ill. Now, Edwards had recently written a sermon. He'd actually delivered this sermon to his people in Northampton, and it was still in his saddlebag. And so he decided that he would preach that that evening. This was a sermon that called on people to recognize their sin before God and the danger that they were in. He talked about God being a just judge and talked about God's wrath towards sinners and the reality of that and the fact that it is he, he is restrained for the moment to give sinners a chance to receive Christ's forgiveness. Now, Jonathan Edwards was no Whitfield in eloquence, that's for sure. In fact, he had a very weak voice and terrible eye contact. He used to stare at the bell rope at the back of the hall. And he rarely moved when he spoke. He didn't gesture or anything. But his words were very clear and his razor-sharp logic and spiritual intensity really impressed people. He often used image after image so that his message was so clear by the end god's wrath he said that evening was like black clouds gathering over your head or like great waters dammed for the present but ever rising and unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering and the bow of god's wrath is bent and the arrow is made ready on the string justice bends this arrow at your heart this is one of the most well-known of Edward's sermons, and it's titled, titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, when most people read that title and associate it with Edwards, they, they imagine him to be a man sort of standing at the pulpit, bellowing, uh, you know, angry words, threats, scaring people into heaven. But that was not at all the heart of Jonathan Edwards. He really saw the danger that people were in. And he called people to repent. He saw that they were ignorant of their sins. They were blind. Oh, sinner, he said, consider the fearful danger you were in. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it. Well, he never finished this sermon at Enfield because the wailing and crying and screaming of the people that packed into that two-room meeting house meant that he couldn't even be heard. People were crying out, "What do I do? How am I going to be saved? I'm going to be held. Going, I'm going to hell. What? How, how do I? How do I? How do I escape?" It was said that a man clutched Edward's coat and called out and said, "Surely God is merciful." Ironically, all this tumult prevented Edwards from getting to that part about God's mercy. He wanted to say that he wanted to talk to them about the extraordinary opportunity where Christ had flung open the door of mercy wide, but he simply couldn't be heard, and he had to stop. But many people were counselled that night, and they went home absolutely assured of their salvation. And it was so clear that the Holy Spirit was working and had a particular appointment with these people in the small country town of Enfield. Now we've had a glimpse of Jonathan's work and a little of his life. What about the woman at his side? Sarah Edwards was an extraordinary woman in her own right. From her marriage at the age of 17, she dedicated her life to be a help to her husband. She recognised very, very quickly that he had a clear calling from God. She oversaw the household, which didn't mean a bit of flower arranging and dusting, in those days, you made the broom before you swept the house. You would have to spin the wool before you made the clothes. You would have to make the candles before you lit them. She broke ice to haul water, to wash, to cook. She oversaw the cattle, the sheep. She had to grow her own produce to feed the family. She had 11 children all about two years apart. And on top of that, the parsonage in Northampton was also, it also acted like the inn, And so there were many visitors and sometimes students who were there to study for months at a time under Jonathan Edwards. She was so capable that it was said that Jonathan had no idea of how many cows he owned. He literally left everything to Sarah. There was one occasion when uh, she had to travel from home and she left Jonathan and the older girls in charge and Jonathan wrote in a letter, we have been without you almost as long as we know how to be. You see, Jonathan commonly spent about 13 hours a day in his study. He would write, he would study, he would read, he would um, be writing his treatises and articles, letters, sermons. He studied God's word very closely. He read everything he he could get his hands on. And he spent a lot of time in prayer. He was also counselling people and, of course, there were students who were studying theology under him. And there were times when he really didn't want to be disturbed even for dinner um, because it would break his focus. And Sarah did what she could to enable him the peace and the time to pursue his writing and his study. But he did spend a period of time every day with his children and he was very much involved in their discipline. And he often went on horse rides with Sarah and they prayed together every night. Now the reason we know so much about Sarah is because one of the students who was staying in the house, Samuel Hopkins, wrote a lot about her in his journal and he wrote about the the Edwards family itself as well. When he arrived at the Edwards home, he, he was very unsure of his own salvation. In his diary he wrote that he felt that he was in a Christless and graceless state. He had a very negative, very gloomy mood and this was noticed by Sarah who went to speak to him. And her words to him really encouraged him a lot. Among many things, she told him that she'd been praying for him ever since he came into the family home, and that she doubted not that God intended yet to do great things by me. Well, Hopkins went on to be a pastor at Rhode Island, and he was a strong voice against slavery, something that Jonathan Edwards was not. Now, Sarah had her own share of struggles. Obviously, she shared in the things that Jonathan was struggling with. But she had a lot to bear herself, especially in 1741, when Jonathan had asked the town uh, for a change in his salary. With a growing family and with increasing visitors and students staying, they simply uh, weren't able to live very well. The town did agree to this but they actually required Sarah to itemise all her spending so that they could check for any signs of extravagance. So she had to bear with the whole town scrutinising her every move, from the material she used for her children's clothes to the number of plates she owned. Actually, it's for this reason that we know that they owned 18 knives and forks. There were other pressures as well. Now, Jonathan during this period was often away from home. Uh, it was the time of the awakening and, and he was travelling. And so sometimes other preachers would come and preach, and Sarah sometimes felt great jealousy as the congregation responded better to the itinerant teachers and preachers than they did to her own husband. And then there was an occasion, one occasion that we know of, where Jonathan made a comment, maybe some sort of uh, correction or criticism of the way Sarah had handled some sort of interactional relationship or something with a, a certain person. And she was really crushed by this. And she realised that she really needed the constant approval of her husband. So on top of the many responsibilities that she had and all these things bearing down on her and then an overwhelming sense of her failings and her sin. It seems like she had some sort of a breakdown. We don't know the details of this exactly, but we do know of an occasion when Jonathan was away again travelling. And we know that God really met with Sarah in an extraordinary way. In a time of her weakness, God came to her and she felt God's presence so keenly that she collapsed to the ground and was unable to speak. She felt his presence and the glory and the wonder of her salvation. And this happened repeatedly over a number of weeks. And the happiness was so intense that sometimes she was rendered completely weak, and at other times she was overcome that she would sing out loud, she would pray, or she would leap with joy. Now some biographers look at this time in her life, and these ecstatic experiences as they were called, as some sort of manifestation of some psychological breakdown. And they certainly don't believe that there was anything spiritual in this. But it's clear that Sarah and Jonathan, who heard about this very shortly afterwards, felt that this certainly was a singular experience from God. Jesus says in Matthew, You shall know them by their fruits. And if we look at the fruit of these strange experiences in Sarah's life, we can see that Sarah continued with all the household and family duties, but that lurking sense of jealousy towards certain individuals and the anxiety and her the fear of losing her reputation and her desire for constant approval, all of these things faded away. She wrote, I continued in a constant, clear and lively sense of the heavenly sweetness of Christ's love, of his nearness to me and of my dearness to him. And little did she know how much she would need this assurance of God's presence and his love for her in the coming years. Now just to give you an idea of how stretched Sarah could be, on one May day in 1747, a man by the name of David Brainerd rode into the yard. He had a deadly fever. He was very ill and needed care. Sarah had just given birth to her 10th child three weeks ago. David would need constant care and, of course, this fever could have been very contagious. And at that time, Sarah was already caring for another man who was also very ill and who'd come uh, for care. She had a house full of children, um, a farm that needed attention. She had a newborn that was only a few weeks old. So we can see how stretched she was. Her daughters were well-trained and it was Jerusha, the elder one who was 17, she was the second oldest, um, she was already known for her faith um, and her close work before God. It was she that stepped up to care for David Brainerd at this time. Now, the other man didn't recover. Um, sorry, the other man did recover, but David Brainerd did not. But he was there in the home for five months, and it was Jerusha who cared for him. And David Brainerd left his diaries and his journals um, to the Edwards family. He had been travelling amongst the American Indians for the last four or so years. And after his death, Edwards published these diaries. And it was one of the first missionary biographies and had a huge impact on people uh, in the 1790s. And many missionaries carried this particular biography with them, people like William Carey and Adoniram Judson. But just four months after Brainerd passed away. Jerusha too caught a fever and she died. And this was such a blow for Jonathan and particularly particularly him. He called Jerusha the flower of the family and Edwards spoke at her funeral and buried her next to David Brainerd. He wrote a letter to a friend shortly afterwards saying, It has pleased a holy God of late sorely to try our family by taking away by death our daughter Jerusha. This letter is to ask for your prayers for us under our great affliction, that it may be sanctified to us, that God would fill up the melancholy vacancy made by death in this family. Now Jonathan's strong relationship with his congregation was all about to change. There were two main incidents that led to this big change. The first was that a few youths in the town had got their hands on a book about midwifery and childbirth. And this had information in it on female anatomy. Such books were very unusual. Of course, books generally were very rare. But these young men were soon sharing uh, this information and these images with other young men. And soon they were starting to harass the young women of the town We would term this as sexual harassment today. Now these young men, um, some of them in their late teens and some in their early twenties, were people who professed faith. They were people who were taking communion every week. This had been going on for a while and maybe it took a bit of time for the adults to find out what had been happening and perhaps it was Edward's own daughters that may have told him about it. And when Edward heard of this, he, he immediately wanted to stamp it out. He called for a meeting and he named these young men who were involved, most of whom were completely unrepentant and extremely disrespectful. But in calling for this meeting, he named those who were involved and he also called for people who had been witnesses or who knew about this issue. But he failed to make a clear distinction between these two groups. And so it seemed like he was incriminating everybody. This small blunder led some of the influential families in Northampton to be very angry that their children could be tarred with the same brush and be involved in this dishonourable behaviour by being named in the same sort of list. And it seemed like a very small thing, but it had a huge impact. Not only that, but there were many people in the town, particularly the younger people, who thought that Edwards was just making far too much of such a small incident. Yeah, you know, the young men were just being lads. They were just being immature. There's nothing serious about this. You don't need to be so heavy-handed. But Edwards felt that this was extremely serious. Here were young men who were professing their faith before God and living openly hypocritical lives. Well, that was the first incident. The second was in 1748. Edwards wanted to make things stricter when it came to the breaking of bread and communion. He wanted those who were clear on their salvation to take part. Now, actually, this was a move back to the Puritan ways. But Solomon Stoddard had changed things. He made the communion or breaking of bread um, or the Lord's table open to everybody. You didn't need to profess your faith. You didn't need uh, to be clear on your salvation or, or even to, to say that you were saved. It was just part of a tradition. Now Jonathan had been not he had been unsettled by this for years, and he was very clear at this point from the Scripture that he needed to make a change on principle. And he made this change at a very bad time. He made the change just at the time that General John Stoddard, the son of Solomon Stoddard, died from a stroke. Now this man was a judge and a general, a very influential man in the community. And, you know, Jonathan probably would have consulted him uh, if he was going to make a change, since he was the son of Solomon Stoddard. But... Jonathan just went ahead and made the change, and and the timing was terrible. Anybody could see that in retrospect. But Jonathan was so focused on the fact that he needed to do what was right and the principle of the matter. He didn't think about the small things about timing. He really wanted people to be jolted out of their complacency. He saw it like this, and this is the illustration he used. He said, it's like a child that's been bitten by a snake and is swollen with the poison. But the parents are just fussing about the child's dirty clothes, completely oblivious to the real danger. So that's where Jonathan Edwards' focus was, and he didn't think about the impact of the timing of these big changes. Well, again, people were angry. The older people didn't like the fact that there was going to be change and that he was changing something that Solomon Stoddard had implemented, and now the son of Solomon Soder had died. Oh, so you're making this change now. How convenient. The young people thought, ha-ha, there you go, another example of you being heavy-handed. Why are you taking away the traditions that are, out, are rightfully ours? These two major incidents led Jonathan Edwards to lose all favour from the townsfolk. These people who used to love him turned on him, and he was dismissed in 1750. He had served and lived amongst them for over 23 years. This was very awkward. He had lost his job and, of course, the income for his large family, but he also had nowhere to live. He had to stay in the town for a whole year. Um, and uh, and even, even then, the, the town st- stopped him from using the pasture land, so they could no longer farm um, or even uh, use the produce from, from their little farm holding. And even when there was no one to preach, the townsfolk didn't even want Jonathan Edwards to stand up at the pulpit. They would rather go without. The family was struggling. The girls started making paper fans so that they could sell them in the marketplaces. And Jonathan Edwards was using the scraps of paper from these fans to sew together tiny handbooks, uh, little notebooks, so that he could write and continue writing in his tiny, tiny writing. Now Jonathan looked to God during this time of trial and he recognized that these difficulties were always opportunity for sanctification. He knew he needed to work on his pride. And he also realized that he had no gift for the graceful gregariousness. He often came across stern, distant, maybe people thought he was cold, but his heart was always for the people. Samuel Hopkins, who lived there for many months, wrote of the family and he wrote of Edward's love for the people and he said, for their good he was always writing, contriving, labouring and for them he had poured out 10,000 fervent prayers. Finally, after a year, there was an opening that seemed right. Stockbridge was a fairly new Indian mission that David Brainerd had been to and other missionaries had served in. There were only about 12 families living in this remote town, 40 miles from Northampton, right on the edge of the wilderness. But around this town of Stockbridge, there were the Mohican and the Mohawk Indian tribes, about 250 in total. In 1751, he moved his family there to this tiny town. And soon his younger children started to integrate in the community and they they learnt the Indian languages very quickly. It's really strange to think that this man who was probably... One of the greatest minds in in the New World at that time was here in this tiny town on the edge of the wilderness and with 12 people and a tiny school that was for the Indian children. But he worked really hard during his time at Stockbridge. It was a very productive time for him and he wrote many of his greatest works here. On the political front, things were very turbulent the French were now allied with the Native American tribes, and, and there was war and violence happening everywhere. You know, there were days when uh, you know you'd hear about an abduction of a child who then was found with a tomahawk in in him. There were times when uh, towns were just burnt. News of attacks were coming, rumors were flying around, and the military actually came to Stockbridge, and they set up a stockade around the Edwards home. During that time, Sarah would serve over 800 meals to the various people who were staying there. Esther Edwards, the third daughter of Jonathan and Sarah, was now married to Aaron Burr, the the president of Princeton. She'd been hearing rumours about Stockbridge and she'd also heard that all the Indians had actually moved out of the area and they were so disgusted with the British that they were calling on the other tribes to go and wipe out the town. With all this news traveling slowly and misinformation coming from all directions and rumors and so on, it was very hard to know what was actually happening, and Esther lived in a constant state of anxiety. Jonathan and Sarah decided to stay in Stockbridge, but they sent the younger children, at least some of the children, back to Northampton to be with relatives. Esther prayed desperately for her children uh, sorry, for her family and she wrote, "Why does God suffer his own dear children to be hunted about in this matter?" but this is a very wrong temper of mind. I hope I might be able to crush it by divine assistance. Well, the town was now an armed camp with the Edwards home at the centre. And it was a time of great discouragement for Jonathan Edwards. He'd started this school and now he had to close it because all the children had gone. He was actually chronically ill at this time, had constant fevers. And then there was war... And generally, he felt like everything was going wrong. In 1755, with war still happening, much violence erupting here, there and everywhere around Stockbridge, Gideon Hawley, a missionary, arrived. He had heard about Indian tribes 300 kilometres away and he wanted to travel there to them and to bring the gospel. But he needed an interpreter. So Jonathan and Sarah decided that they would send their son to go with him, Jonathan Jr. And Jonathan Jr. would serve as the interpreter to Gideon Hawley. This was actually an incredible decision if you think about it. Travel was hard at any time, let alone when there was war. They had no idea about these Indian tribes that they were sending their son to. He might be killed on the way, uh, kidnapped for ransom, anything. But... They decided that they would send him, God's work first. Jonathan Jr. was nine years old. Jonathan sent him a letter for his tenth birthday, and this letter is remarkable, and it shows just how focused Jonathan was on eternity and how much he prioritised that. A local boy, one of Jonathan Jr.'s friends, had recently died. And in this letter, instead of talking about local news, Jonathan told his son to prepare for death at any time. And he told him of the death of his friend David, and he said, let this be to you a loud call of God. Never give yourself any rest until you have good evidence that you are converted and that you have become a new creature. His father loved his son dearly, but held him loosely, and he prioritised his eternal needs more than his temporal concerns. Now Esther soon had her own grief to deal with. Her husband, Aaron Burr, the president of Princeton, died very suddenly at the age of 41, leaving her with two children. And less than a year later, Jonathan Edwards received the invite to uh, take up this position that was left vacant by his son-in-law the position to be president of Princeton. He'd been now seven years at Stockbridge, and it seemed like the right thing for him to do, although he was actually very sad to leave. He travelled to New Jersey during the middle of winter. He travelled alone because he wanted to spare Sarah and the family the the horrible trip uh, in the cold winter months. They were to follow him in the spring. When he arrived, there was a smallpox epidemic. And around that time, there were many scientific discoveries uh, being made, and particularly around the idea of inoculations. And Jonathan was an avid reader of all things scientific, and and he had read about this, and he called his daughter and his two grandkids, and they, they decided that they would all take the inoculation for smallpox. Jonathan then began his position as president of Princeton. But just in a few weeks, he contracted smallpox. This was expected. Um, You had the inoculation, you get a small sort of dose of it, but you probably wouldn't die of it. But in Jonathan Edwards' case, the smallpox was in his throat and in his mouth, and it was soon impossible for him to swallow. And there was nothing the doctors could do. Knowing that he would die, he dictated a final message, which his daughter Lucy wrote down it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And as to my children, you are now to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you all to seek a father who will never fail you. And Jonathan died soon after, in 1758, far away from home, far away from his dear wife, who had been his help for 31 years. Now receiving the news of her husband's death and this final message was such a blow and such a shock for Sarah. And yet, her words in a letter that she penned to her daughter Esther, really shows the transforming power of the gospel. And not only that, but the fruit of her earlier experience. She wrote, The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness, that we had Jonathan so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am, and love to be. Well, this letter never reached Esther, because the young mother contracted a sudden illness, and Esther died, leaving her two children orphans. Now, Sarah Edwards received this next blow, but she got herself together to make the very long journey to New Jersey, to collect her two orphaned grandchildren and take them home to care for them. The travel was very hard. She was physically weak. She was emotionally weak as well. And on the way back home, she contracted dysentery and she passed from this world into eternity. She also died far from home, but in the home of friends, who reported that she expressed her entire resignation to God, and her desire that him, he might be glorified in all things, and that she might be enabled to glorify him to the very last. In Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, we see two believers who were certainly a stirring testament to God's sustaining grace. They used their particular gifts to faithfully and, and wholeheartedly serve their generation. Jonathan wrote about 1,400 sermons, all in tiny, spidery handwriting on hand-sewn notebooks made out of scraps of paper from the backs of receipts to bits of uh, cut-offs from dress patterns and paper fans. He wrote great treatises, a mixture of philosophy and theology. His most famous being Original Sin, which is a great theological work, His most philosophical being Freedom of the Will, and then Religious Affections, which talks about the emotions that are part of the Christian walk. On top of that, he wrote numerous letters, a lot to to young people with advice. He wrote Bible commentaries, miscellaneous reflections, scientific essays. He even wrote an article on Flying Spiders. Scholars have have numbered his texts close to 4,000. Christianity was for the heart and the head. But Jonathan Edwards believed first and foremost that the mark of a true believer was love. And with love comes humility. And that is the essence of God and his spirit within us. And that is the testimony that we have to the world. Jonathan Edwards uh, expressed a very keen awareness of sin and of coming judgment. But this also meant that he had a very clear sense of the beauty and love of Christ and the joy of living for him. We cannot have one without the other. But without his dearest love Sarah, much of his work would not have been possible. She was his help, his stay, his rock. As a young man in his late twenties, he wrote these words in a sermon. The enjoyment of God is our proper and is the only happiness. With which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here, better than fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. We're going to finish now by singing a song that Jonathan and Sarah Edwards would have sung in their Northampton meeting houses and in the homes of various people in little informal gatherings. And they may have sung this at Stockbridge as well. We're going to sing hymn number 252, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, the hymn that Isaac Watts penned. And I think in this hymn we also see many themes that are very relevant to Jonathan Edwards' experience. You know, he probably sang uh, with lifted voice to pour contempt on all my pride. That was something he wrote about often as a real danger and he wanted to deal with that in his own life. He also really understood the magnitude of God's love. And I think we can say that Jonathan Edwards and Sarah too gave their soul, their life and their all. He was not perfect, he was flawed, he had blind spots. But certainly he's a servant of God that We definitely can learn from.